The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm your host, Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host, Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hi. Also here is Rob Siren. Good day to you, sir. Hey, Jen. Now, a bit later on, we'll be discussing regulations and Silicon Valley. Fun stuff. Stay tuned. We'll also be handing over to Hong Kong to discuss the situation with all the demonstrations there. But first, we go to London to get the lowdown on Britain's newest prime minister. This is Swaha Patanaik, Global Economics Editor, and I'm here with Richard Beals, our guest editor over in the UK this Hello. week, who is a deputy editor of everything at Breaking Views. So, Richard, we are going to discuss, during your time here, we've had uh, a new prime minister voted in by the uh, small membership of the Conservative Party. We have Boris Johnson, the favourite, uh, who everybody thought would become prime minister. Nonetheless, the vote is now over. He got two thirds of the vote of this very small number of uh, Conservative Party members. And because he's now the leader of the Tory party, he will become prime minister. Um, we're talking on Wednesday at some point this afternoon. Great. And um, how long do you think, this is, the, this is the critical thing, how long do you think he'll stay in the office given his majority is dwindling? There's lots of problems with Brexit. What do you think? Well, this is just a, a fascinating question to me. I mean, this is a man who clearly had huge ambition to become prime minister. And yet his options are really limiting and difficult. I mean, he, he could, uh, there's, there's a couple of things he could do. One is he could, everybody will remember Theresa May, uh, who will uh, quit as prime minister today to make way for Boris Johnson, uh, tried multiple times to get her deal with the European Union through the British Parliament, uh, a Brexit deal with, with you know, elements of uh, common trade and so on to, to come after the exit from the actual union. Um, and yet she couldn't. So can he rehash, somehow rehash that deal? The EU seems to be saying no so far. So that, that option, uh, tough, possible, tough. Um, no deal is kind of the message on which he campaigned, which is we're going to, we, it's time this was done. We get, we're going to be out on October 31st, fittingly Halloween. And uh, if there's no deal, there's no deal. Now, that's extremely unpopular in Parliament, and the only thing Parliament's been able to agree on it recently seems to have been against no deal. Uh, the third option is, could also still lead to one of the other two, which is he can hold a general election to try and have a sort of popular mandate for his no deal Brexit in, in effect. Um, and how that would turn out is anybody's guess, huge political risk, I, I would have thought. Absolutely. And the other thing that's been happening during your time here is that everything in the UK is looking cheaper and cheaper for you because the pound's going down. <laughs> and hotter and hotter right now. Absolutely. Too. I'm sure it's hot in New York as well. But um, So part of the problem with the pound has been that a hard Brexit uh, prospect is deemed as bad for the UK economy, may lead to lower interest rates, and people have been selling. We've gone to uh, two-year lows against the euro. What do you think, uh, you know, coming with a sort of fresh eye to the thing, do you think it's now fallen too much? Do you think the prospects of a hard Brexit, you, you seem to indicate there's a good chance this could just happen like that. Well, I think the chances of a hard Brexit have gone up, which is one reason the uh, um, pound has fallen. Um, the, I mean, the problem is nobody knows really what the economic impact is. I mean, the, there's, a, I think, a very strong consensus that it's not good. Um, but I think people also underestimate 
the the reality, which is that once something if something happens, people will find a way to muddle through. So it's not like everything else doesn't change and things just get worse. People will figure out ways. So it's it's so hard to know. Um, I mean, we haven't yet had Brexit. We haven't yet had a recession in the UK. Um, I saw a report the other day suggesting we could already be in one, but we don't know that for a fact um, until we see it. So I, don't, I can't answer your question. I always say with currencies is the last thing I ever want to try and predict. It's just so difficult. Fair enough. Um, the one thing that might be easier to predict, however, is that there'll be more spending. One of the things that Boris Johnson has said coming in that there's sort of fiscal policy will be loosened. He looks set to appoint a chancellor who will, you know, fit well with that uh, mind. The current right. front runner is a guy called Sajid Javid, who's the interior minister at the moment, but has called in the past for more spending on housing, infrastructure yeah. fund and stuff like that. I mean, the world and both sides of the pond, let's broaden it out a bit, in the US as well, we are looking at more fiscal activism around the world because central banks have just done so much that they're you know very close to zero lower bound or gone even below this is not a bad thing necessarily no not a bad thing necessarily i think that's right i mean if you um recall people like ben bernanke the former uh, chairman of the uh, federal reserve in the u.s he used to go to congress and say look we've done what we can we need fiscal stimulus this was in the wake of the financial crisis he said you know you guys essentially need to do something as well we we can do what we can with monetary policy levers which are limited and if you really want stimulus you have to spend and at the time there was a reluctance to spend um there's been some spending and now it seems well i'm not sure uh, donald trump's administration wants to spend but they certainly want to collect less tax so in terms of the gap between um, revenue and uh, outgoings, it's certainly widening it. And the same, we could easily see the same sort of dynamic in the UK. I mean, certainly, I cannot imagine Boris Johnson will not want to make good on some of his promises or, or the campaign rhetoric uh, suggesting the NHS, for example, National Health Service will get more money. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for uh, coming in to discuss uh, Boris Johnson's uh, premiership. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. Now let's move on to our second topic of the week, and that is whether Silicon Valley's big firms are about to face their Microsoft moment. Seems like you can't open the paper these days, guys, without seeing yet another piece of information about regulators cracking down or thinking about cracking down or thinking about thinking about cracking down on the likes of Facebook, Apple, uh, Alphabet, Amazon and the like. Um, and now we've had a couple of pieces of news this week. First of all, a $5 billion fine for Facebook from the Federal Trade Commission. Also, a much smaller $100 million fine from the Scooters Exchange Commission. And also, the Department of Justice, Jen, and you're looking at this. Uh, the Department of Justice is uh, considering looking at whether all these firms and others have too much market power. So, Jen, where does this leave us then? Uh, what do these firms do? Are they in trouble? Uh, the Microsoft idea is a, is one we were thrashing around earlier on, that you know, this is what Bill Gates's firm went through two decades ago. So what's the big problem here, do you think? So really the big problem is regulatory scrutiny in any form or shape or however you want to look at it. So you have that. And then you also have... But that's a not a bad thing in itself, is it? No, no, no. I'm just telling you. It's not bad for a consumer or you or me. It's not great if you're a company. Um, and, you know, this is on top of Congress that keeps hauling in all these executives from Facebook and and Google and whatnot. Um, there's just a lot of attention right now that is focusing on Facebook, Apple, Amazon, right. and uh, Alphabet. So, 
you know, what's going to come of this? Uh, it's hard to say, right? It's just there's so much being thrown at them right now. Well, Different the first thing agencies. we got is this, this fine, right? The $5 billion fine yeah. that's been imposed on Facebook for mishandling data, user data that it sold to Cambridge Analytica, the, the infamous right. now defunct firm that was involved in the whole, uh, well, I think they even got involved in the, the, the um, U.S. election, correct? Yeah. So the FTC, which is the one who levied this fine, is out there crowing that it's one of the biggest that they've ever, you know, put on a company for violating privacy. And that is true to an extent. It's $5 billion. That's it's not a small number. It's not a small number. It's a small number if you're Facebook, though. I mean, this is a company that has a market cap that's in the multiples of that. They have revenue that's, you know, somewhere in the line of 50 to $60 billion a year. You know, they have a profit. So this is nothing. This is small potatoes for them. They didn't have to admit wrongdoing. I think you said um, this could have been more than twice as much based purely on way more what the than twice as much. Said. Yeah, I mean, so this is kind of this is a great win for Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Um, but at the same time, you have the Department of Justice, which a day earlier put out this statement, which is also unusual that they're going to start looking at the competition and the marketplace for online search uh, companies. Um, e-tailers like Amazon, they didn't say Amazon, but e-tailers and also search uh, engines. Right. So that puts those the, the big four squarely in the frame, even though they're not mentioning them. Yeah. And the issue here then becomes one of, you know, if you've got this regulator thing, I mean, they're, they're, I suppose the problem is there's no real uh, target they're looking at. I mean, as in no target idea, they've got target companies, but they're not really saying what it is these companies necessarily have done wrong what they can look for, unlike, say, the European Union has been quite good, I think, over the years at saying, this is what we don't like, this is what we're going to go Yeah, the, Europe the European Union, by comparison, has been much more um, exacting in what they're looking at. And they kind of pinpoint an issue and they go right after it. This is much squishier. And, and part of the reason is that historically, the Department of Justice tends to look at deals or companies that um, have pricing power that, right. you know, that that's they have a monopoly that way. And it's hard to look at that right now with Facebook. Facebook's a free product. There is yeah. no real pricing power for them. Same thing with Google. They have search. They have email. They have YouTube. You're not paying for any of that stuff. Um, and so what happens is you have to kind of step back and think, OK, maybe the DOJ is thinking about new ways to redefine monopolies. Duopolies. Okay, that, that would be a really big change, right? It would be. It, it'd be a really huge change. Um, and and so they're opening up this review. They want to talk to rivals to these companies. Um, they want to talk to the public. And right now, this is kind of all in the air with a lot of different people right. and a lot of different Congress people. And so it's it's interesting that the DOJ is kind of taking this all in now. In the meantime, also, uh, I think you alluded to this earlier, where the DOJ brought this out a day before the FTC's fine, yeah. which, which has been long awaited. And I think mo most of us in the news business had been told, basically, or been heard that um, that this was going to come on the Wednesday. So this announcement from DOJ sort of supersedes that. Yes. Which, in, this fits into some of the reporting yeah. you've done about how the agencies in D.C. are no longer divvying up turf as much as they used to. The, more so, so the agencies usually work hand in hand, basically. And in this instance... Um, it's interesting th that the DOJ tried to steal some of the FTC's thunder. Yeah. Um, so you, there's that kind of happening. But um, also, I have heard, along with my colleague uh, Gina Chan, that um, they are squabbling um, between themselves over how to divide up uh, the sec different sectors. Like, FTC tends to take, mm. you know, 
certain industries. The yeah. DOJ looks at other industries. Um, they're squabbling over that. For deals, it's taking longer because there's an actual clock that's ticking. Yeah. And, you know, if you don't file in a certain amount of time, then that, that you have to refile. You have to restart the clock. Basically, it drags on. Mm -hmm. And we've seen this in a couple of instances. Yeah. So it's, it's a problem. Yeah, and actually, this, this does remind me very much of what... Uh, the U.S. banks had to go through. I say had to go through. My God, did they deserve it? But um, you know, back before the crisis, there were four or five different regulators, uh, each of whom very much wanted to control their turf. They didn't want to have, give too, see too much power to anyone else or give too much control over decision making. And after the crisis, after the financial crisis, um, these uh, the ones that were left, there four or five of them that were left. I think one of them was subsumed or killed off. Um, they had to start working with each other, but they had a lot of internecine fights, and it took. A, that's partly why you had a long time frame for getting some of the Dodd Frank rules out um, after the crisis, because they spent so much time doing it. So, Rob, let's bring you in on this. So, you know, we mentioned Microsoft earlier on, and that's the big one everyone points towards, as you know, where it got stuck in the mire of regulatory oversight. Um, you have been looking at Microsoft probably for far too long for your own good, which means, for our purposes, it's fantastic. Why is Microsoft such a good example for us to look at in this case, even though there are differing uh, elements to how regulators now are acting? There are a few good reasons. First off, it's a big tech company, big dominant tech company. It was, uh, you know, it was kind of a test case for antitrust law. Um, also, the fines were big, but relatively small compared to the company. Right. But the main important thing is how long it dragged on. So let's so, take this back. So this 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 first started way before. In the early 90s, right. the, the, the regulators in the U.S. first started looking at Microsoft. They came to an agreement. Then later, in the late 90s, uh, the, both the EU and the U.S. Um, launched antitrust investigations, uh, formal ones. Um, and the U.S. eventually, in a court decision, um, decided to break up Microsoft. Eventually, the U.S. backtracked a bit um, and, and settled for a smaller thing. But the Europeans kept on fighting, and it took... Um, well, almost until 20, after 2010. And that, of course, was based on Microsoft's operating system being very dominant and fears that the company was then using that to impose its um, the, the fear browser. was that the, yeah, the fear is Microsoft would use its dominance in one market to extend dominance in other markets, right. which is kind of similar to what you know the tech companies are being right. charged with today for Google, for instance. The, 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 but the main damage occurred was actually internal. Um, because Microsoft, for years, they spent a lot, executives spent a lot of time, you know, shuttling back and right. forth, debating how to fight these things, spending a time, you know, actually, actually do fighting these things, paying money, and also just not spending time in the business. So let's, let's, let's go through that. So I think the, the one stat we had in one of the pieces we ran this week was that between 98 and 2011, Microsoft stock really hardly did anything. So from yeah after so it went up during the dot com bubble of course to right. like uh, insane heights but then two thousand and two to two thousand twelve the stock did not move right the company's earnings actually doubled but however um, the investors just didn't believe in Microsoft and that's because Microsoft missed the mobile revolution um, basically if you think about what was happening in the early you know early two thousands um, was basically smartphones were starting right. to be you know to ferment the the uh, companies were looking at them figuring out how to work them. Um, and during this time, Microsoft had its eyes elsewhere. They weren't spending all this time. Right. And if you think about it, they should have been all over that. Businesses were all yeah. over smartphones. It should, should have been, you know, maybe they wouldn't be Apple, but they, sh they should have taken the business from Google and instead. You think most of, most of that is it's not just due, due to poor management decisions, but actually decisions prompted in part by 
look, we've got to deal with the government. We're distracted. And who knows, if we went, went after mobile, maybe we'd be accused of doing yet more Exactly. There'd yeah. be the, there would be there was the, always the fear that if they acted too aggressively in a new market, the government clamped down again on them. And you know, it's it, back it, a long time, right? Because n- now we see them. I think they're now the most valuable company in the world. I think of the of the big three, you know, along with Apple and Amazon. They're the ones that it, Microsoft is the company that has just for the second time after the crash, recent crash, gone back above a trillion. So at least they're getting yeah. They, back they, on well, track. after after a long, long time, long time, they eventually they moved on to a different market, which is cloud computing, yeah. and that's the reason why their valuation right. has risen so quickly. And so maybe years. maybe that's a, a one extreme. That's a sort of 10, 11 year period of of um, ex- uh, a lot of oversight which hurt their stock and hurt uh, what the company decided to do. Jen, you have another example which is more recent and was maybe a year a year or two in the in the uh, in the process, and that is AT and T. So, mm-hmm. why don't you talk us through uh, how that what what happened there? So, in October 2016, AT and T announced that it wanted to buy Time Warner, uh, the media company, for 85 billion dollars. Um, a year later, the Department of Justice decided to sue to block the merger, and they were claiming that AT&T would use their market power effectively to uh, make it difficult for people to get content. Right. I mean, I'm boiling this down. but um, And so what happened was AT&T is dragged into this fight, and they had to go through the court process. They had to go down to Washington or go up to Washington in their case. Um, and, you know, this was Let's see. The decision came down in 2018. Two years after the deal was made, a year or so after. The DOJ appealed. So finally, all this stuff wraps up in January 2019. So they announced the purchase in October 2016, and this whole thing is, you know, one of the one of the big products that um, Randall Stevenson, the the AT&T CEO, really wanted to get out of this was to, to, to get a step up on um, video streaming. Yeah, that, that, that was one of the cornerstones yeah. and, and one so of the main reasons for the deal. So taking on Netflix. Taking on Netflix, um, and, and you, that was one of the big things. So they have this new product coming out called HBO Max. It is their Netflix competitor, if you will. That is not due to come out until the spring of 2020. Now, you could step back and say... AT&T probably wanted to get this product out a little earlier, particularly to coincide with Game of Thrones, which is part of HBO, yeah, which they bought. Great marketing. Great marketing. It would have gotten people interested in the product, et cetera. Um, but for whatever reasons, that didn't happen. Now they haven't necessarily got as big a show, obviously. Um, Netflix has, what, 80 million subscribers in the U.S., Disney's probably going to launch a bit earlier than than AT&T. Uh, yeah, a little so. bit earlier. Yeah, and that's not to say that, look, look, they could have a very successful launch, but you want to go out as strong as you possibly yeah. can with the strongest content you have. So, I mean, so in some then, what we're talking about is the potential for um, short-term, to, in AT&T's case, uh, and, and still somewhat disruptive to very long-term, in Microsoft's case, disruption that gets in the way of doing business day-to-day and really just gets you set on thinking, we've got Washington on our back. Yeah, and, and, and also, keep in mind, these are four enormous companies. And where they are in their life cycles right now, being able to continue to come out with new products and enter new markets is pretty critical yeah. for all of them. Look at Apple. I mean, Apple's like, what are we going to do? We, you know, these these uh, smartphones are great, but they're kind of like ta- tapering off in yeah. that cycle. They've got to come up with something, the next new thing. And, and that holds true for um, the other three as well. All right. Thanks, guys, for talking us through that. Now let's hand over to Hong Kong. John Foley is on point to talk with Katrina Hamlin about the latest developments in the protests in the city over there. 
Of all of the financial markets in Asia, the one that is most associated with stability and rule of law is almost certainly Hong Kong. But those two qualities are being put to the test at the moment with a series of increasingly violent and chaotic protests uh, originally caused by the introduction of a proposed extradition bill that would have made it possible to send people from Hong Kong into mainland China uh, when they committed crimes. Now, Katrina Hamlin, you're based here on our Hong Kong team. You've been watching this situation for several months now. Um, and over the weekend, things kind of escalated, became a bit more serious, didn't they? We had not the first weekend of protests, but a weekend that was accompanied by violence in a subway station and also attacks on, on a new target within Hong Kong. Why don't you talk us through what's happened and how this week feels a bit different from what came before? Mm. Yeah, the scope and the scale of the protests has continued to to kind of balloon as protesters struggle to to get their points across. And this weekend, that led to one group of protesters going up to the Central Liaison Office in Hong Kong. This is um, the office that acts as a kind of you know go between between Hong Kong and, and Beijing. So it's really very significant and and symbolic. Um, even more so, I would say, then approaching, um, going inside um, the local government, which is what happened a few weeks ago. And then separately over in Yuanlong, which is a neighbourhood quite close to the Chinese border, as some of the protesters were making their way home from those protests in central Hong Kong, they were accosted and beaten by an unknown group, we think perhaps triads. And so what, what we've seen is the drama increasing and also the divisions becoming you know, ever more apparent. So this all feels a bit different from the last wave of widespread protests that we saw in Hong Kong. I remember 2014, the uh, Occupy Central movement, you and I both um, were writing about at the time, was a group of youngish, mostly students, who had some issues with the way Hong Kong was governed. Those protests went on for several weeks and then kind of fizzled out. But this kind of feels different in the sense that these have been violent acts in subway stations. We've had things happening in shopping centres and and now, of course, this attack on the liaison office. What else is different? How How is this different from 2014's protests? Uh, well, I think one thing we've highlighted already is it seems less peaceful. I think there is a real sense that the protesters have worked their way through all the different options and they still haven't been heard. So they're much more willing to try different ways of, of expressing the problems now. The other thing that's extremely different is we don't have any obvious leader in this movement. There may be leaders, but they're certainly not public. And so that makes it more difficult in a way for authorities to grapple with and to stamp out. Right. So how and how is this affecting the markets? Because Hong Kong is a city of financial markets. It's got a huge capital market here. All the main global companies that you can think of are all based here. You know, the, the Goldman Sachs, the city groups, um, you know, the big law firms all have Asian bases in this city. And back in 2014, one of the things that, that didn't really get rattled by the Occupy Central protests was the stock market, which the Hang Seng Benchmark Index basically kind of bobbed around, um, wasn't too badly hit. And the same has happened again so far here. I also noticed house prices are close to a record, which is sort of a constant in Hong Kong. House prices are the thing that everyone likes to talk about in the way that British people talk about the weather. So is that a sign then, do you think, that the financial markets think that this is going to slightly you know, fade out peacefully without major damage being done to the city's status as a financial hub? Oh, well, I think the markets have been quite calm and you have to remember that they've coped with similar large-scale protests before. And that said, these protests have been dragging on for some time now. They've become more extreme. They've entered into public spaces like malls, as you said. 
And last week, we had the very first few earnings reports from different companies that do business in Hong Kong. And Swatch and Richemont both said that they saw a dip in sales in Hong Kong. And they're sort of a bit ahead of the curve because the Hong Kong listed companies haven't started to release their results yet. So the worry is that this could be sort of the first of many. And in fact, the local retailers association has um, sort of come to a similar conclusion. They put out a statement saying they think sales are going to drop by double digits for the full year. Wow. Yeah. So we're looking for we're looking at potential profit warnings from companies that do business here. And I guess some of the economic statistics will see retail sales, restaurant sales will be coming out soon. So you'll be looking at those to see That's right. how much this is going to affect the, com- the city's economy. Yeah. So as those numbers come out, I think perhaps the markets will begin to respond a bit more. The other thing we might see is, um, you know, as the presses roll around um, to go with the results, we may get a few more public comments by the business people in Hong Kong who who have traditionally played a very public role, um, the tycoons and so on. Right. So, the, so this is a small, smallish group of families that hold a large percentage of the city's wealth and run a lot of its businesses. Right. Mm. They they were so they uh, one of the things that had a calming effect, it seems to me, on the Occupy protests was Li Ka-shing who is probably the most famous of Hong Kong's tycoons, coming out and advising people to basically go home and, you know, live a quiet life and don't let, I think he said, don't let today's passions become tomorrow's regrets. It seems like the tycoons have been a lot more quiet this time. Why is that, do you think? I think at the beginning, the business lobby was a really important voice in this debate. But much of what they were doing was behind the scenes. So we would hear their point of view, but sort of secondhand, it would come through the chambers of commerce, which meant that no one really had to stick their neck out. They could get their point across in a public manner without having their face on it. And I think that's partly why we didn't see so many people coming out. You know, what did the they beginning. want, though? What, what was the tycoon's agenda? Well, actually, at the beginning, the tycoons were very much on board with the protesters. They weren't very happy about the extradition bill. There was a concern that, you know, it could affect everybody. They, of course, had big businesses in, in China. That means they've been active there for some years. And, you know, perhaps it's hard to do business in China sometimes without cutting corners. So they may have felt vulnerable. Um, also, I guess they benefit from the stability and the rule of law in Hong Kong. So anything that is perceived to erode that. They get the, be- the best of both worlds. They get their profits from China, but they also get the stability of that's Hong Kong. That's right, yeah. So anything that seems to kind of chip away at, at Hong Kong's you know, relative autonomy and, and rule of law can be bad for their business. And will you be looking for more sign of what they're thinking when companies start reporting their earnings? Of course. And if we don't get that, then that will be another kind of interesting difference between now and 2014. Absolutely. Well, we'll be watching this very closely. Um, Thanks for joining us, Katrina. That's our show for this week. Thanks to all of our guests, Swaha Patanaik, Katrina Hamlin, Rob Siren, Richard Beals and John Foley. Thanks also to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. And hats off as well to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Don't forget to join us every day at breakingviews.com. Do subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget also to listen to our sister show, The Exchange. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another edition.